We think of the company as kind of a golden baton, that the seller has had this company often for many years and cares a lot about it. And we need to find some way to transfer that baton from the current owner to a new owner without it hitting the floor. Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the second episode of our series on growth strategies for government contractors. In this episode, Catherine Hickey, practice group chair of Polaro Maza's Business and Transactions Group, sits down with SB Liftoff's founder and CEO, Sharon Heaton, to discuss the current healthcare M&A marketplace and how to maximize your efforts for a successful transaction. Before we join the discussion, we have a little business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. My name is Katherine Hickey. I am a partner in the business and corporate group at Pilero Mazza, and I am joined here today by Sharon Heaton, CEO of SB Liftoff, a business advisory firm and transaction advisory firm that works with small businesses. Sharon and I have worked together on many transactions. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Katherine. It's a pleasure to work with you again. As always. And today we wanted to talk about M&A, which, which both of us do day in, day out, and specifically M&A involving healthcare companies. As with most highly regulated industries, healthcare presents its own particular unique challenges in the buying and selling of assets and the buying and selling of companies. We're going to give an overview of you know, the M&A process in general and try to really focus on things that are specifically important when you are going through an acquisition that involves a healthcare company. So just very briefly to get started, just a little bit more background. Sharon and I both work with small businesses of all shapes and sizes at all stages of their life cycle, helping them with growth or with exit or acquisition opportunities. My practice focuses on general corporate work as well as transactional work. So we help get companies organized. We help with financings. We help with day-to-day -day operational issues as a company grows. And then we also help when they look to exit. We also do a lot of representation of buyers in the market who are looking to grow by acquisition, or they might be you know, an investment firm that has acquisition as its growth strategy. I do a lot of representation in highly regulated markets, including government contracting, as I know Sharon knows that space very well, and a lot of work with healthcare companies. So very familiar with sort of the operational day-to-day -day challenges faced by making sure that you stay within the, the boundaries of the regulatory landscape, and then also translating that regulatory landscape into, well, how do we structure a deal and make sure that we make everything run smoothly through that process? So that's my background and what I bring to the table here today. Sharon, do you want to take just a minute to give a little background on yourself? Certainly. My name is Sharon Heaton. I am the CEO of SB Liftoff. SB Liftoff is an M&A advisory firm, which is a fancy way of saying that we help people buy and sell their companies. As Catherine says, we work in the part of the market that's about 10, 15 million in revenue up to about 150 million in revenue. Where Catherine works on all parts of the life cycle, SB Liftoff is really involved primarily in the transfer, although we do work with companies for quite a number of years before they actually get ready to do that transfer. We work with both buyers and sellers, although most of our work is done on the sell side. What I find so interesting, and I'm delighted to be doing it with Catherine, is that there's a basic structure for how these deals get done and the kinds of issues that come up. In a highly regulated industry, such as healthcare, the issues are only magnified. And so the kinds of things that Catherine and I are going to be talking about today are absolutely the things that need to be done really before you go to market, because otherwise it could actually blow up later in the process. And that's unpleasant for everyone. So I'm delighted to be doing this today with Catherine. Let's get started. That sounds great. 
And yeah, just to echo something that Sharon mentioned, we often find that clients are surprised by how long it takes to get your company ready to sell. So Sharon mentioned that she works with companies for several years getting ready to go to market. And that is pretty much the standard. And, and frankly, it's definitely best practices if you want to make sure that you can maximize your value and, and make sure that you have a successful transition. So anybody out there who might be thinking, oh, you know, I might be thinking about selling in the next three to five years, the time to start talking to advisors would be now. So an agenda to set the stage for today, we are going to talk through first an overview of the process for the sale of a business. And Sharon's going to walk us through soup to nuts. What does that look like? Then we're going to get into some considerations for deal structure. How do we put a deal together? And what specific things might come up in structuring a healthcare acquisition that may not be something that would be of concern in just a general commercial deal? We'll talk about different options and features that we see for purchase price consideration, how those are structured, and again, some particular things to keep in mind in healthcare acquisitions. And then we'll focus on the diligence process and items that a buyer would want to focus on when diligencing a target company that is in the healthcare world, as well as things that a seller would want to be aware of as likely points of concern and potential areas of risk when you go to sell your company, if you are a healthcare company. And then finally, we'll touch on, for healthcare companies specifically, what are the implications if you undergo a change in ownership? What types of things do you need to make sure you address either pre-closing or post-closing to make sure that there's no interruption to your operations? So that's an overview. We have a lot of content, but we'll try to get through as much as we can. Well, let me start on this one. Because what I'm going to do is try and put context around the details that Catherine's going to be talking about in a few minutes. The sale of a company, whether it is a healthcare company or something else, has some basic walking and tackling that's kind of consistent regardless of the industry. So it's worth talking about that. So there's really a three-part process to selling your company. The first process, first part, is preparation. And I've got to tell you, that is the foundation of the entire process. If you don't do that preparation right, you're going to have problems throughout the rest of the process, and hopefully it will end up being a successful transaction. But this is where a lot of the mistakes get made that cause transactions to blow up in the later stages. Now, Catherine and I both mentioned the time period to take your company to market. I talk to a lot of business owners who might say, I'm not ready to bring my company to market today, but I am in five years. So I stop and say, what's going to be different in five years than today? They say, well, I'll be bigger, I'll have better EBITDA, I'll have whatever it might be. Great. What are you going to do today to make sure that in five years, that's the result that you have? Doing exactly the same thing and expecting to have a different result is probably not a good plan. So that preparation can really begin years in advance. We certainly have people that come to us two or three months before they want to put their company on the market. And there's a lot that we can do in that time period. But if there's any kind of restating of the financials or you know, some cleanup, that might be a little bit more challenging if you're still in that same fiscal year. So it's worth kind of checking in with somebody like Catherine or I when you're in the stage where you're saying, not now, but I might want to get there in three years from now or five years from now, whatever it might be. So I'm going to talk about the circumstance where somebody has come into my office or Catherine's office and says, I have had this company for a lot of years, love what I'm doing, but I want to retire or I want to go off and travel or whatever it is I want to do. How do I bring my company to market? And there's this three stages. And the first is the preparation. And the preparation is incredibly important. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And that's where our team comes in and does due diligence on the seller. Now, the seller is our client. And we'd like to think that our clients are all perfect and wonderful, but our experience is that every company, no matter how strong it is, has some strengths, but has some challenges as well. And we strongly believe at SB Liftoff that it is far better to be honest about what those challenges are. Because if you're honest and create partnership between the buyer and the seller, you're creating a foundation for that transaction to be successful in the long term. So knowing what are your challenges are incredibly important, and that's where phase one comes in. Phase two is kind of when you start talking to people in the market. That's when you're going to market, and we'll talk about that in more detail. And the third is closing. 
And the closing is really from the time that you have a letter of intent until you actually close the transaction. So depending upon how long each of those stages last, it could go from anywhere from six months from the time that you begin a process until it could be nine or more months, depending upon the status of your company. For instance, as Catherine has indicated, SB Liftoff does a fair amount of GovCon, probably about 50% of our practice. So in GovCon, as in commercial companies, there's a lot of issues about, do you have repeat customers and what does your backlog look like? And what is the recurring revenue situation in your company? One of the interesting things is that there are times when I've said to GovCon companies or other, tell me about your 10 largest clients. And I get an email five minutes later saying, here's who they are and here's what they've been on the last several years, et cetera. And I've had others who basically said, let me take a picture of the whiteboard in my office and we'll send that to you. And that's the best that we have. Now, I promise you that we can work with either of those, but it will take us a little bit longer with the one that sends me a picture of their whiteboard than the one that can actually send me the materials. So when somebody says, how long does phase one take? Kind of depends on the company. This is really what's happening during phase one. And what is the most important element of it is gathering in lots of lots of information. Because by the time that a buyer is done with the transaction, they will have due diligence to everything. Do not assume that there's going to be an avenue of your company that they don't look at. And you know what? They're entitled to. They're going to be laying out real money to buy your company, and they're entitled to know what's going on. So we work from the premise that transparency is the best way of handling things. So we compile and analyze a lot of information, and that often leads to further questions. We then calculate what the company is worth in the hands of this existing owner, and we try and understand the company as to what its future might look like. Selling a company is a little bit like selling a house. You may particularly like the bright green wall color in your kitchen, but it's very possible that buyers won't, and you might need to do that painted over as a white. Kind of the same thing here. Buyers won't be able to understand your company nearly as well as you, so we need to build out the story for them as a jumping place for them to go. So that understanding is really important. Get back to analyzing what are all the various things going on, and then we develop a metric-based growth story for that company. Because again, a buyer is putting real money on the table and cares a lot about not only getting their money back, but this being a positive investment. And the reality is, we think of the company as kind of a golden baton, that the seller has had this company often for many years and cares a lot about it. And we need to find some way to transfer that baton from the current owner to a new owner without it hitting the floor. We want to make sure that the employees, that the clients, that the finances are unaffected by or minimally affected by that transaction. And getting all of our ducks in a row is very important. This stage of preparation is where so much of what Catherine's going to talk about in the next few minutes comes into play. In phase two, what we're really doing is phase one is all kind of looking inside, looking at the company, us working with them. We work with lawyers and accountants to make sure that we have a full understanding of what's going on. Phase two begins when we start talking to third parties. Now, SB Liftoff has a lot of proprietary data of people who are interested to buy companies, but we also do research and we reach out to a wide network of people. And what we're trying to tell them is the story of the company. We get responses from those buyers and then we provide them with more information. For SB Liftoff, we really want a buyer to truly understand the company and have done some serious due diligence prior to signing a letter of intent. Because if something's going to be a problem, we want to find out as early as possible. I joke with my staff that it's much better to fail early than it is to delay it as long as possible and then have a deal collapse. Much better to kind of find out if it's not going to work because maybe there's a union involved, maybe there is a regulatory issue that is of concern to the buyer, better to find that out in phase two than in phase three. And this is where, again, so much of the work that Catherine's going to be talking about has to be done because this is where due diligence is going to come into play. And if buyers find problems that sellers didn't tell them about, it breaks trust. As nervous as a seller is about selling their company, because it's probably their biggest asset, they've been working on it for a long time, 
as nervous as that seller is, a buyer is even more nervous because I don't care what level of due diligence the buyer does, the seller will always know more about that company. So if the buyer thinks that the seller is hiding things, it's very hard to get that transaction over the line. So there needs to be a real understanding and partnership between the buyer and the seller. And again, that's where the due diligence comes in. Let's go to phase three. And phase three goes from the letter of intent to close. So the letter of intent is an important pivot point in the relationship. Because up until that point, buyers are usually trying to court the seller. There's usually two or three, and everyone's saying, you know, sell it to me. I'm more interested. And that's terrific. But the letter of intent is kind of putting on the engagement ring. It's not, you're not married yet, but you're making a pretty serious commitment to each other. And the serious commitment that's being made by the seller is that the seller is going to give the buyer exclusivity. That is, that the seller is not going to talk to any other parties during the time that the buyer is going through their stage three to get this deal to closing. And that's fair because the buyer is going to open up their wallet and start spending big money on lawyers and accountants and due diligence and whatever else it might be. And they're saying, we're willing to spend that money, but we don't want to be in a competitive process at that point. So it's pretty important that you sign an LOI with somebody that you can actually see yourself closing with. This, again, is where some more detailed issues come in. We like to tell buyers that we're looking to give them access to due diligence in phase two. And then the phase three due diligence is largely confirmatory in nature. We need to prove to you that all the things that we told you before are, in fact, true. So that's kind of phase three. And this is what I have taken as the two things that kill transactions and why what Catherine's about to speak about is so important. One is time. Going through a transaction, particularly once you have buyers at the table, is an exhausting process. They are asking for information left and right. And, you know, I and our, my team try and do everything possible to take some of the burden off of the seller or the buyer, depending upon what side we're on. But it is, a, it is an exhausting process. And it's not something that you should take lightly. So when you go into it, you want to do it as efficiently as possible so that you're not burning excess time. The second thing that kills deals is surprises. And those surprises usually come up in due diligence. Usually it's the seller has said X is true. The buyer does, looks at the documents and says X is not true. The seller might say, oh my God, I didn't realize that. That's a problem. And that's a surprise on both sides. We really work very hard to make sure that there's no material surprises that occur in phase three, because then you're going to be talking about an adjustment to the letter of intent purchase price. If those surprises get resolved in phase one, then it never comes up with a buyer. But even if it comes up in phase two, it gets incorporated into what the purchase price is that the parties are going fo forward on. So it's, again, really important that we find the relevant information, particularly in a highly regulated industry like healthcare as early as possible and resolve them or explain them as opposed to just laying, having them lay out there and becoming a little bomb later in the process. Strong, effective due diligence before going to market in phase one and in phase two can prevent the deal killers of time and surprises from really upsetting the apple cart. With that, I'd like to turn it back to Catherine to talk about some of the unique issues associated with healthcare companies. Thanks, Sharon. Before I get started, if you are planning to take your company to market, the cost of a transaction can vary widely. It depends on your industry. It depends on the size of your company. It depends on the, you know, how the deal is structured. In some cases, it depends just on the temperament of the parties on each side and how hard the deal is negotiated. What I typically tell clients as a good placeholder for legal fees in a sale of a company is 1% of the transaction value. It's a really rough estimate, but without knowing anything else, if you need a placeholder and a budget, that's a, that's a good ballpark. And Sharon, I don't know if you had anything to add on that. Sure. There's definitely a market for M&A advisors. Catherine's giving a good estimate on the legal side. Here are the various things that a seller has to take into account. One is if they're using an M&A advisor, and we strongly urge that you do so, obviously, there is a fee associated with that. The way in which SB Liftoff does that is that our money comes largely upon the success of the transaction. So we get a success fee. 
We also charge monthly fees, very modest in the scheme of things, and we credit those generally against the success fee of closing. So it's not a way of increasing the fee. It's a way of just kind of tertiating it out a little bit. Here are the various costs you need to think about. One is the M&A advisor. Two is legal. Three is you're likely to have accounting fees. Two others that people don't always think about is one, you're going to be required to leave working capital in the company. And so we need to be talking about working capital early in the process to understand roughly what that is. And then second is when you sell a company, the biggest part of that agreement is usually what's referred to as the reps and warranties. And the reps and warranties are all the things that you're saying about your company. No, we have not lost our license to do business. No, we have not involved in any litigation. The reps and warranties generally get backed up by some type of escrow account, because if, in fact, the buyer incurs a cost as a result of one of those reps and warranties being inaccurate, they want to be able to get money to resolve that issue without having to go back to the seller and take it out of their pocket. So there's usually some amount of the purchase price put in an escrow for a limited period of time, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months depending upon the transaction. So those are the various costs. By far, the biggest cost I haven't even mentioned yet is taxes. You're gonna pay taxes, and so just have to recognize that's gonna come in. Please be aware that your purchase price is not going to be the amount that you put in your pocket at the end of the day. Catherine? Ready to transition into our next subject, which is deal structure. One of the biggest drivers in structuring a transaction is tax efficiency. That doesn't change depending on your industry. Parties are always interested in figuring out the most tax efficient way to structure a deal. Now, in the context of healthcare, there are some additional restrictions, limitations, regulatory requirements on how certain companies can be owned and how transactions can be structured that would need to be taken into consideration on top of the tax considerations. One of the considerations that comes up, and this is dependent on the jurisdiction where a company is formed, is something called the corporate practice of medicine. These are statutes that vary by state. There's no federal uniformity here, and each state treats this a little bit differently. The concept of what is the corporate practice of medicine, generally it is engaging in the provision of medical services by a non-licensed professional. And the concept of a non-licensed professional applies to individuals. It also applies to entities that are owned by non-licensed individuals. So what would be called in the healthcare industry as a, a, quote, lay corporation is a corporation that is not owned by licensed medical professionals. Some states have very loose restrictions. For example, Maryland, which is my home state does not have a very strong restriction against the corporate practice of medicine. So a company can be just a general corporation or a regular LLC that can have owners who are not licensed medical professionals. They can have management individuals who are not licensed medical professionals, and they can have officers who are not licensed medical professionals, and yet they can still engage in the provision of medical services. There there are usually some licensing requirements still. There's usually some restrictions on who within the organization can actually make decisions with respect to the provision of medical services, but there is not a restriction against a regular LLC owning a dental practice, for example. That is very different in certain other states. For example, New York has a very strict corporate practice of medicine statute. Pennsylvania is another one with a a pretty strict restriction, and they vary. In those types of jurisdictions, the rules say that for a a company that is involved in the provision of medical services, those must be provided by a professional corporation or a professional LLC. And that is an entity that is formed specifically for the purpose of providing certain types of services, medical services being one of them. And typically, those entities have to be 100% owned and operated by licensed medical professionals. And some jurisdictions go even further to require that the licensed medical professionals have to be licensed in that state. So it's not just that you can be a doctor who's licensed to practice medicine in New Jersey and own part of a practice in New York. You actually have to also get licensed in New York. So this comes up in the context of M&A because when you're structuring an acquisition, oftentimes a potential buyer will not meet the ownership requirements of the corporate practice of medicine statutes in a particular organization. 
if you are a company going to sell, it is very important that you understand what the limitations are for your company based on where you're formed and where you practice. Number one, you want to make sure that you've been in compliance all this time. And if you haven't, you want to talk to your advisors and figure out what do I do to clean house? Because that's definitely going to be a point of diligence. And number two, it's going to help influence who your potential buyers are and how you can potentially structure a deal. So one way, certain things that we see that come up in jurisdictions that have very strict corporate practice of medicine statutes is this concept of a, quote, captive professional services entity. What does that mean? So let's take New York, for example, where there's a really strict prohibition against the ability to own an interest in a company that provides medical services if you yourself are not a licensed medical professional. But say you're a private equity firm that is, you know, building a portfolio of strategic healthcare companies and want to figure out, okay, well, how, how do I build that out into these more restrictive jurisdictions? Or if I'm looking to sell and I want to maximize my deal value, I certainly don't want to rule out those, those buyers. Something that we see is management companies that are formed and they are not engaged in the provision of medical services. They typically provide back office support, administrative support, financial support, and they help with kind of organizational services on behalf of medical companies. There is typically a management services agreement between a management company and the professional company that says, here are the things, here are the services the management company provides. Here's the fee that's being issued in exchange for those services. The management company expressly has no authority to make decisions with respect to the provision of the medical services, but they pretty much handle everything else. And usually the companies can work out a way to allow a non-licensed entity or individual to own an interest in the management side of the business. And they can work out an economic arrangement by which the economic benefit associated with the business can flow through that management agreement up to the management company and get the investors and, and the, the owners comfortable with that sort of indirect ownership of the ultimate practice and, and all within you know, compliance with the regulations. People who work in, and live in, in the industry are pretty familiar with this type of structure. Somebody who comes in new to the industry or new to a particular jurisdiction might need to have this explained to them to get comfortable with the fact that, no, you can't actually own an interest in the company you're buying but here's how we can make it work for you. And we can put contractual limitations in place to make sure that nobody can pull the rug out from under you after you've paid good money for your investment. So that's something to keep in mind. A couple other points I'm just gonna mention. In the healthcare industry, there, there are a lot of hospital groups and other entities that have 501c3 status. If you're entering into any sort of joint venture agreement with, with the 501c3 or other professional services agreement, just be aware there are limitations on those entities that have nonprofit status and what their public benefit goals are and how they can be operated that need to be addressed in, for example, a joint venture agreement. So that's just something to keep in mind as well. Okay, so moving on to another structuring consideration, purchase price consideration. What are some different components and how can we put together the package of what a seller might expect to receive when they sell their business? In general, there are a few buckets that consideration can fall into. And in most transactions, and Sharon, I think you would agree, it's very rare that we see an all-cash transaction. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. So, right. Usually, there's going to be some cash component of what the sellers are going to walk away with at closing. And then in addition to that, we often see some other features of consideration that all achieve different purposes. One type is rollover equity, where the sellers, in addition to whatever cash purchase price they get, would also receive an equity ownership in either the company they're selling or in the buyer entity. And that is going to be part of what they are going to receive as consideration and would continue to hold pretty much indefinitely into the future. Another feature is an earnout. This is where there is going to be potential additional cash paid to the sellers in the future, and it is contingent upon the achievement of certain performance goals for the target company. 
And that can be based on EBITDA, it can be based on revenues, it can be based on particular contract captures. Earnouts are usually highly specific to the target company and what its growth goals are. And they're usually targeted at you know, things that are anticipated to happen in the one to five years post-closing. And even five years is kind of a long earnout period. Usually I would say three. So again, those are usually future payments that are contingent upon the achievement of certain milestones. And then finally, there are often holdback and escrow features. And Sharon touched on this. Those are usually there for buyer protection. So either the buyer would hold back a portion of the purchase price, which is simpler, but less protective for the sellers, or they would escrow a portion of the purchase price, which is more protective for the sellers because you know that the cash is there. And that the holdback or the escrow would be there for the buyer to access if it has a claim for indemnification or, or anything that comes up after closing that is really losses resulting from issues created by the sellers prior to closing. If they have a claim, they would exercise those claims against the holdback or the escrow. One other thing that I wanted to say about rollover equity is that it's usually designed to address the situation where the seller is not looking to retire, for example, but is likely to remain on board and continue to help run the business and grow the business. If you give a seller rollover equity, that incentivizes their continued involvement and it gives them a share in the potential upside. So that's often a feature that we see, for example, in private equity-backed acquisitions because their, their strategy is typically going to be, you know, you buy a company, you grow a company, you build it, and then you sell it for more. And we all, we all see the upside of that. So the rollover equity is, is part of what they like to offer. So that, that's you know, what that is often trying to achieve. Each of these items has a little bit of a nuance when it comes to how it works in the context of a healthcare acquisition. So for example, with respect to the corporate practice of medicine and the offering of rollover equity, you'd need to look at what the, what the restrictions are in ownership in your particular jurisdiction to determine, okay, who is eligible to be an owner of the operating company? Is rollover equity appropriate in the operating entity or would it be more appropriate in the management side of the company? So the overall structure is going to dictate where the rollover equity makes the most sense to sit. And then another thing to think about with respect to these types of common consideration forms is earnouts in particular can be areas of high scrutiny in the acquisition of healthcare companies. Because, and we'll get into some of the regulatory restraints later, but under anti-kickback laws and under the Stark laws, there are restrictions on an arrangement by which there is an economic incentive given to a potential referrer of medical services by which they would benefit from making referrals to a practice. So... The problem with earnouts is that if you have a growth goal like that's based on revenues or EBITDA, and by achieving those goals, you will get earnout payments. And if you have a seller who is a medical provider, or even if they're not a medical provider, if they are a referrer of medical services and they have the opportunity to make referrals to the company that would help the company achieve higher revenues and thus pay earnouts back to the referrer. That circle there is going to be problematic under the anti-kickback regulations. And so one of the key things to keep in mind is just try not to structure earnouts that are going to create a direct incentive for referrals. You can tie them to other milestones, you can, but it's just something you really need to be aware of because those statutes come with really hefty penalties. If I could say something you don't mind, every seller wants cash at closing and completely understand that. The reality is, as I mentioned before, the buyer is probably more nervous about the acquisition than the seller is, and the seller is very nervous. So one of the things that the buyer is looking for is signals from the seller that the seller wants to basically leave their keys on the table and walk out and have nothing to do with the company going forward. So I've been finding that there's been more and more interest in some level of rollover equity, in part to keep the seller at the table and having some level of interest in the future benefit of the company. Now, on one hand, sellers get very frustrated with that and say, I don't have any control. 
why should I have five or 10% equity of something I no longer control? Completely understand that. In contrast, the buyer's perspective is, I'm spending the money for the 80% of this company or the 90%. I'd like to make sure that you have a vested interest in making sure that the employees stay, that the, that the mood remains positive and all those kinds of issues. So it is something that frequently comes up in terms of rollover equity. And earnouts are something that is very important in healthcare and otherwise, because our philosophy is that the buyer should pay for the value of the company at closing, but sellers are often planting seeds in the ground and not all of which have sprouted. And the seller said, but look, look at what might happen. That could be a lot of value. And an earnout can be structured so that if in fact those seeds sprout into trees, there's a sharing of that benefit between the buyer and the seller. But if in fact those seeds turn into nothing, then the buyer hasn't paid for that. So that there's some reasons to do earnouts. Now, earnouts are have a very bad reputation. And you know, one of the things that we do is that we try and have very objective standards upon which that earnout is going to be triggered. We don't like doing it on something like EBITDA because if the buyer were to bring in a $400,000 CFO, you've just hurt the EBITDA for the seller. You can't really do it that way. You can do it by revenue. You can do it by gross margin. You can do it by some other kind of tangible things. You got a contract. You didn't get a contract. But earnouts are very important, highly problematic, and need to be carefully thought through. And Catherine's point about the earnouts, particularly in the healthcare industry, is really important. And that's the kind of thing that should be thought about with your attorneys in phase one before you go to the market so that you have a realistic expectation of what the values might be. In regard to that, what do you do about determining the value of a company that is a healthcare R&D company, but really doesn't have any revenue? In most circumstances, in most industries, those companies become available for a venture capital play, but not so much the normal purchase and sale process because the normal process counts upon looking at your earnings and looking at your revenue. What a company, a healthcare company that has R&D with no revenue is, is basically a moonshot. It could be phenomenal or it could in fact turn to nothing. The reality is the healthcare industry has its own infrastructure for dealing with these kinds of companies. So those companies are very sellable in healthcare and you've got to be very focused on who would benefit from that research to figure out the appropriate buyer. So again, a phase one issue, if you're a company that's R&D, no revenue, clearly you need to be thinking about in phase one, how would you structure that transaction and who the appropriate buyer pool would be, because it will be different than if you have revenue and profits. I'm sorry, Catherine, go ahead. No, I completely agree. I think that's a great point with respect to the R&D firms. I might've already talked about this, but just going it back to earnouts, the goal of them, again, as I think Sharon mentioned, can often be to help bridge a perceived gap in company value between the buyers and the sellers. The sellers think that their company is worth $40 million. And the buyer says, you know, I've, I've looked at your financials. I've looked at your backlog. I, I just don't see it. And maybe there's like a $5 million gap. So often you'll see the buyer will say, you know, hey, we'll put that $5 million into an earnout. If it turns out that, in fact, you do hit those projections, you are worth as much as you think you are, you'll get the benefit of that, but we don't have to pay for it up front. So that's often the purpose. And then again, as I mentioned, pay very close attention to structure and consult with healthcare experts to make sure that you're not running afoul of anti-kickback regulations. Okay, so a little bit about financing arrangements with respect to the acquisition of a company. In most cases, not all, but in most, there's going to be some sort of senior debt that is backing the acquisition of a company. And the senior lender is going to take security interests in the assets that are being acquired. So for example, the buyer is getting a loan to help finance the purchase of a company. That loan is going to be backed by a lien on all assets of the target company. And so here, when you're dealing with a healthcare company, some of the assets are treated a little uniquely under the commercial codes and how you actually can use them as collateral. For example, healthcare insurance receivables, which is an interest or a claim under an insurance policy, a right to receive payment for the provision of healthcare goods or services, that is treated very uniquely under commercial codes. And so senior lenders 
I really bring this up. I don't want to get too much in the weeds on it, but just be aware if you have healthcare insurance receivables as assets, those are going to be subject to particular scrutiny from the senior lender. So that's going to create potential sources of delay. They're going to want to make sure that they understand how your accounts are set up and how they can get as close to a perfected security interest as they can. Usually banks perfect security interests by taking possession of accounts. And that's not always possible with respect to certain healthcare payable accounts. So just be aware that this could be a point of focus and something that you're going to have to work with the buyer's lender to make sure that they get comfortable in order to finance the deal. I'm going to talk a little bit in a little more detail about what the Anti-Assignment Act is. This is with respect to payments that are made to a medical provider under Medicare or Medicaid. There's a prohibition against assignment of government payables. So if you're getting payments for Medicare or Medicaid, that is a payment from the government. And the provisions require that payments to providers, again, this gets back to the issue of security interests, because you're not technically permitted to assign an interest in a government payable. So this is, again, banks are familiar with this and banks that finance healthcare acquisitions kind of understand, or frankly, banks that provide lines of credit to healthcare companies understand the limitations of what they can and cannot do with respect to accounts that might have government payables involved. But it's just something to be aware of and understand that you're going to have to work with the bank to make sure that the financing is all buttoned down before you can close the deal. Okay, we can talk a little bit about diligence. And a lot of this we've already talked about. So we can get into what are some issues that are likely to come up in diligence of a healthcare company. One is licensing requirements. Understanding based on your operations and where you're based, what licenses are you required to have? Do you have them and are they current? That's part of the sell side preparation. And then for buyers, once you take over ownership, are any of the licenses going to be affected by the acquisition? If there's a change in ownership, do we have to update it? Do we have to get a new license? If it's an asset acquisition, you probably do have to get a new license because usually licenses are non-transferable. So those are going to be things that you're going to need to make sure are fully teed up to transition smoothly at closing. Because obviously, having license licensures lapse is going to significantly impact the transition and the ability to maintain uninterrupted operations. Another thing that would make the buyer very nervous to say, if they've lost their license and they didn't know it, what else is going on that they don't know? It's one of those things that if you find one problem, people become far more suspicious and start looking for lots of other problems, even if they're not there. So it's well worth making sure that those things are caught and thought about before you go to market. I totally agree. Find them early, fix them early. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is the takeaway from today's session. <laughs> Another focus of diligence in healthcare acquisitions is coding and billing. This is with reference to if you're providing medical services and you're submitting for payment for third-party payers, so insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, how are those services being coded and billed? Are they being done accurately? And do they have appropriate internal systems and safeguards to make sure that the, that coding and billing is being done accurately? This is a huge potential source of liability for buyers. And in most transactions of any size, they're going to bring in a third-party service provider to do a coding and billing audit. Because if they need to know that your practices are buttoned up, because there are significant successor liability issues. And that means that the buyer of the company would have full liability, even if it wasn't done on their watch, for issues of overpayment, because the actual obligation to correct overpayments starts running from the date of discovery. So if a buyer buys the company and three months later finds out that there are millions of dollars of overpayments on its books, that's the buyer's obligation to make sure that they make those payments correct. And the purchase agreement may have indemnification provisions and, and ways that the buyer can protect against that. But one of the best ways they're going to try to protect against it is by doing an audit on your coding and billing practices. So again, look at it before you go to market. Make sure that you have good systems. Make sure that you've identified any potential issues and tried to rectify them. And to the extent there are any issues, definitely disclose that early in the diligence process and make sure that the buyer understands that you understand any potential issues. Again, this all goes towards that building of trust and making sure that everybody knows we're not trying to hide the ball, we're just trying to get it right. HIPAA is another big one. 
The protection of personal health information is huge and is only getting more important in this age of you know, data breaches, everything is electronic. What are you doing as a company to make sure that you are in compliance with HIPAA's guidelines and that you have appropriate safeguards in place to make sure that you're not risking a breach that could compromise somebody's personal health information? So this is going to be, again, also a focus of books and records diligence, systems diligence, policies diligence. As with any company that has a high amount of data privacy considerations, a healthcare company this is for sure going to be a strong point of diligence focus. This is actually an issue, and it comes up in a variety of contexts, but particularly in the healthcare context. You know that there's going to be a third party coming in to do due diligence on the coding. You know that there's going to be a a third party coming in to do the HIPAA compliance. One of the options that a seller has is to hire those people to do the due diligence before they go to market, because then you can find out, is there a problem and have time to fix it? before you go to market. Alternatively, if you don't do it that way, then you are basically saying, we think our systems are good, but what, when it comes down to a forensic examination of them, oh, we're taking a little bit of a chance here. So it depends upon how the seller feels, because it's not an inexpensive process. It's going to cost you know thousands upon thousands of dollars. On the other hand, it's also something that's more likely to make the deal stable and close. Thank you, Sharon. So we already talked about what the anti-kickback statutes and Stark laws are. Again, an issue of controlling referrals that potentially could benefit the referrer and making sure that no feature of the transaction obviously triggers potential liability. We also want to make sure from the seller's perspective and a diligence perspective that none of their pre-existing business relationships could raise concerns for a buyer in the context of these regulatory frameworks. This is, again, going to be a focus of diligence. So make sure that you understand the restrictions and that you consult with your advisors before going to market so that they can tell you if there's anything likely to be flagged and what you might need to do to fix that. So this isn't healthcare specific, but it is very timely. We wanted to mention that currently in in any M&A transaction going on right now, there's very likely to be a feature related to COVID-19 related funding under the Paycheck Protection Program or potentially an economic injury disaster loan. And this is going to be a high focus of any transaction because of potential loan forgiveness for PPP loans. Buyer wants to make sure that if there's an issue with that loan, that they're not inheriting the obligation to repay it. And there are certain steps you need to go through with your lender and with the SBA potentially to be able to undergo a change in ownership transaction while a loan is outstanding. So again, just be aware that this is a special diligence item that is very timely right now because of the COVID-19 relief. And often these items create additional lead time because it can be slow if you have to deal with the SBA and the lender. So just identify that early, make the buyer aware, make your advisors aware so they can start figuring out what they need to do to get that teed up for closing. False Claims Act compliance. This is relevant for a lot of healthcare companies, even if you're not If you don't think of yourself as a government contractor, if you're not engaged in in the world of public procurement per se, but if you're receiving payments through Medicare and Medicaid, you are receiving payments from the government. And those are the situations that can potentially lead to liability under the False Claims Act if there have been false statements made to the government for purposes of receiving payment from the government. So, for example, you know, billing and coding issues, if they are severe and if there's evidence of reckless disregard for the rules or an intent to defraud, can trigger liability under the False Claims Act, which has very significant penalties associated with it. So, again, this this just kind of reinforces why these are such a high focus of diligence, because there is such a significant penalty associated with any violation. In terms of Transaction structured as an equity acquisition, some things to keep in mind that could result from a change in ownership of the company. Again, look at your licenses, figure out if you change owners, what do you have to do to keep those current and active? The payer contracts might include certain anti-assignment or changing control provisions that require the third-party consent to the change in control. And so you need to identify those early and often. Sometimes third-party payers can be really aggressive in enforcing those provisions and trying to extract a pound of flesh in association with approving any transaction. So just understand that that might be an extra negotiation, and you want to make sure that you get ahead of that early so that it doesn't hold up the closing. 
For Medicare changes in ownership, keep in mind that in order to make sure you don't interrupt payment under Medicare, you need to, the new owners have to submit a, a CMS form 855A and other documentation that's required for approval of the change in ownership. Even if because of the threshold of percentage changes, it might not trigger a change in ownership under Medicare, even if it doesn't, the target company does have to report a change in ownership as a change in their Medicare information within 90 days following closing. So just make sure that that's on the list. Any issues there, again, could interrupt payment, which you certainly want to avoid as much as possible. And then this is, I think, the last point we were going to address, which is for a change in ownership, how does this impact the provider agreement? The target company has two options. The buyer can accept assignment of the target company's provider agreement, which means that the new owner inherits all of the obligations and historical liabilities under the provider agreement. So that obviously provides a little bit of additional risk, but it's a much more streamlined way of making sure that that transition happens smoothly. So sometimes you'll see parties be willing to assume that risk and maybe try to address it under indemnification provisions in the purchase agreement to make sure that they don't interrupt the transition by accepting assignment of the provider agreement. Alternatively, a buyer can say, we don't like, we don't have full confidence that the liability here is gonna be manageable. So we're not gonna assume your provider agreement in that case, though, the buyer does need to apply for a new provider agreement under Medicare under the new ownership, and the new owner won't be allowed to bill until that new provider agreement is registered. So it's a higher likelihood that it's going to impact the transition and potentially interrupt payment. And this is just another reason going back full circle to why the diligence process is important. Again, the more comfort a buyer has with the target company, the more likely they would be inclined to say, you know, we understand what's there. You've run a clean company. We're comfortable assuming your provider agreement. It's in everyone's best interest to make sure that we don't interrupt that. And again, if you have an earnout, if you have deferred consideration, any smoother transition is going to increase your odds of achieving that earnout. So in, in this way, the buyer and the seller's interests are largely aligned. And it all comes down to cooperation, getting ahead of things, understanding your company. Those are the ways that you avoid those deal killers Sharon mentioned of surprises and delays and hopefully get to a successful closing. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Palermo Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.